episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous episodes as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So let's start tonight, uh, as promised two weeks ago, sorry about that, uh, talking about Sophie Scheut a research assistant in the Department of Cross-Cultural and Regional Studies at the University of Copenhagen, who recently discovered the oldest known set of instructions for embalming mummies on a medical papyrus that she is translating for her doctoral thesis, which will be published in 2022. The scroll, dating to around 1450 BCE, predates the other previously known texts by more than a thousand years. Half of the papyrus scroll is in the university's Papyrus Carlsberg collection, while the other half is housed at the Louvre. It wasn't actually until 2018 that it was discovered that the two parts are actually two halves of a larger uh, whole. Now, the entire document is almost 20 feet long, with writing on both sides of the papyrus. It's the second longest medical text that survives from ancient Egypt. Scheut's project relies mostly on high-resolution photographs. Now, not only is this better for preservation of the papyrus, which is obviously very old and thus fragile, but it actually makes it easier to work with. This way we can move displaced fragments around digitally, as well as enhance colors to better read passages where the ink is not so well preserved, Scheut said. It also aids in reading difficult signs when you can zoom in on the high-res photos. Now there are five sections of the scroll. First, there are short medical recipes. Then there is a section on herbs followed by a long section on skin diseases, then the uh, embalming manual, which is our focus, and finally there is another section of medical recipes. And so the embalming manual consists of just three columns of text, but despite being short, it includes a wealth of information, including much that is not present in later texts. Several recipes are included in the manual describing the manufacturing of various aromatic unguents, Scheut told Live Science, referring to substances used such as ointments. Interestingly, processes such as drying the corpse with natron, a desiccating compound made of sodium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate, or basically salt and baking soda, aren't described at length. As such, the text reads mostly as a memory aid, helping the embalmer remember the most intricate parts of the embalming process, she said. Now, the text states that embalming takes around 70 days and would have been completed at a special workshop near the person's grave. There were two main stages, which each lasted approximately 35 days. The first stage was drying, and the second stage was wrapping. 
One of the new snippets of information is a procedure for embalming a dead person's face. It includes a recipe that combines plant-based aromatics and binders, which would be cooked into a liquid, with which the embalmers coat a piece of red linen, linen, she said. The red linen is then applied to the dead person's face in order to encase it in a protective cocoon of fragrant and antibacterial matter. Now, this should be done every four days during this process, according to the school. On days when the embalmers were not actively treating the body, they covered it with straw infused with aromatic oils in order to keep insects and scavengers away, according to Scheut. Work largely finished around day 68, with the last few days spent on ritual activities allowing the deceased to live on in the afterlife, she wrote. And so, yeah, very cool to find these different recipes. Um, and I think it's really interesting how much older it is. So we know that the Egyptians practiced mummification for over a thousand years. Um, and we obviously have found uh, the remains of mummies uh, in the Sahara as well. And of course, there's natural mummification that happens if you simply put someone in the ground in the really dry sands in the Egyptian desert. Uh, you know, they, they desiccate naturally and they become a sort of mummy. Um, and so it's pretty clear how this developed. Um, if you want to know more about the mummies from um, the Sahara, there's a documentary, it's probably a decade old now, I think it was one of the episodes of Secrets of the Dead um, from PBS, it's called, um, I think it's called Secrets of the Black Mummy, um, I'll look it up and I'll try and put a link to it on the webpage. Okay, um, so yeah, the other interesting thing I um, was thinking about Egypt today was that I was watching a YouTube um episode from a um, archaeologist and a historian, and they were talking about kind of myths about ancient people. And one of the prevailing myths is always the idea that the pyramid is this amazing, completely precise bit of engineering. And while yes, that's absolutely true in the abstract, when you look at the rocks that are in the inner casing of the pyramid. So the rocks that we largely see today versus that beautiful sandstone, um, those sandstone casing blocks that would have been there originally, you can see that those rocks, those boulders are very irregular. Um, and so the building blocks are all sorts of different sizes. Uh, they're not cut at perfect 90 degree angles. And basically, the way that they um, built it out, they had to have enough precision so that the thing wouldn't collapse, but it doesn't have that kind of magical precision that a lot of people, especially those who believe that it, the Egyptians must have had help from someone, uh, it, it's not that way. And in fact, if you look, you can see realistically for the pyramid, the biggest blocks are on the bottom and they get smaller as they go up because it would have been 
harder and harder to move them up the pyramid. And so you can really see the very clear marks of human construction. Um, and that's something I always like to remind people that, you know, anyone who tells you that ancient people couldn't do something simply lacks imagination or an understanding of engineering and uh, the way that forces can be applied to make things easier. Um, they've clearly never used a lever. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. All right. Let us move on now and talk about a different kind of um, piece of writing. And so this time, it is a magical girdle, quote-unquote, worn, worn in childbirth by women in medieval England. The girdle is actually a ten-foot-long strip of parchment, which is covered in Christian emblems and features chemical traces of its use by women as a magical amulet meant to protect them during pregnancy and childbirth. On the birthing girdle, or birthing, or birth scroll, researchers found traces of plant and animal proteins from ingredients once used in medicinal treatments for common health problems involved in pregnancy, as well as human proteins which matched cervicovaginal fluid, suggesting the scroll was worn by women as they gave birth. This particular girdle shows visual evidence of having been heavily handled, as much as the image and text as much of the image and text have been worn away, biochemist Sarah Fidiment of the Archaeological Department at the University of Cambridge told Live Science in an email. It also has numerous stains and blemishes, giving the overall appearance of a document that has been actively used. And so the paper, published in the journal Royal Society Open Science, notes that the long and narrow scroll was probably constructed in the late 15th century from four strips of sheepskin, which would have been scraped and sewn together. The imagery contained on the scroll includes pictures of the crucifixion nails, the monogram IHS, which is a way to write Jesus's name, a standing figure with the crucifixion wounds associated with Jesus, a tau cross, which is a cross without the top bar, um, adorned with a sacred heart and shield, among other images, as well as Christian prayers written out on both sides of the item. The rare surviving object is part of the Wellcombe Collection housed in London, which is absolutely a bucket list trip for me someday. I absolutely cannot uh, imagine not at some point going to be able to visit the Wellcombe Collection. It just sounds like it's amazing. Now, we know about these garments from medieval texts, where they are referred to as being rented out by churches and monasteries to women in return for a donation. We have records that state that when the wife of Henry VII became pregnant, the sum of six shillings and eight pence was paid to a monk that brought Our Lady Girdle to the Queen. Women would wear the scrolls made from either illustrated parchment or silk wrapped around their waist and belly in one of several different configurations. The four-inch by eleven-foot dimensions were thought to be those that would have fit Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
Now, the girdles are rare at this point because they were targeted as part of Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, where many important religious artifacts were lost as Henry petulantly rid his country of Catholicism, as best he could at least, in retaliation for the Pope's refusal to grant him an annulment. One of the great anxieties of the Reformation was the adding of aid from supernatural sources beyond the Trinity, study co-author Natalie Goodison, a historian at the University of Durham and England, I'm sorry, Durham and Edinburgh, explained. The birth girdle itself seemed to have been particularly worrisome because it seems to harness both ritualistic and religious power. And so, in order to examine the girdle without harming it, the researchers applied dampened small discs of plastic film to the surface in order to have chemicals, chemical traces from the materials, transfer onto the disc. And in that way, they could pick it up without actually having to do much um, manipulation of the cloth itself or the parchment itself. Now, this is a technique that has previously been used to study fragile paper documents and even mummies' skin. And so they found traces of pro trace proteins from honey, cereals, legumes, and milk from sheep or goat, which are all ingredients commonly found in, rec in recipes for medieval treatments for childbirth and other ailments associated with giving birth. Milk from goats was thought to revive the woman after blood loss, and beans were thought to heal lesions of the womb and to start the flow of milk for suckling. They also found 55 human proteins on the parchment, as opposed to just two on a control scroll not known to have been involved in childbirth. Most were from, again, human cervicovaginal fluid. This can provide a further possible indication that the roll was indeed actively used during childbirth. This particular girdle was either forgotten about or stored away by midwives, who potentially continued to use the girdles even past the dissolution of the monastery some sixty years later. If it was employed by midwives on the sly, it could have been used for a hundred and fifty years, but we think that the longer date is less likely, Goodison said. The very fact that this manuscript is so obviously worn indicates that it was very well used. My impression is that it was used in hundreds of deliveries. So that is quite interesting. Um, I had never heard of a birthing girdle before this uh um, article showed up and I read a little bit of the paper. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about medieval people and how they were superstitious and things like that. But honestly, uh, before the advent of, uh, antibiotics and good surgery techniques, Giving birth was an extremely, extremely chancy thing to do. And yes, people did it all the time. Women were giving birth all the time. None of us would be here if women didn't give birth and survive. But many, many, many women died in childbirth. 
And so, yes, they were able to carry the child to term, but then they themselves died because childbirth was such a traumatic event. And so I can absolutely see why someone would want to employ a little bit of help, um, especially something so steeped in Christian belief. Um, and so it's absolutely not surprising that these women would have employed such a sort of talisman um, item, even though it can seem really silly today. But I mean, really, given the how hard it was to uh, survive childbirth, I should say, surviving pregnancy was pretty easy, but surviving the actual birth of the child was a lot harder. Um, and a lot of women would have had, um, you know, preeclampsia and things like that, that, you know, medieval doctors were just not equipped to handle. Um, if you had hemorrhaging, things like that, um, you know, it just, it was not, your odds of survival were very slim. Um, and so it's very clear that this is something that women would have employed in order to give them kind of a, you know, a leg up on perhaps surviving. Okay, so we are going to switch gears now and turn our thoughts once more to the cosmos. <laughs> and so uh, two new papers published in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Planets, from Stephen Desch and Alan Jackson, astrophysicists at the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University, are challenging the idea that Oumuamua, that odd, flattened, cigar-shaped object that passed through the solar system back in 2017, is an extraterrestrial object. Instead, they suggest that it is a piece of a Pluto-like planet from another solar system. In many ways, Oumuamua resembled a comet, but it was peculiar enough in several ways that mystery surrounded its nature, and speculation ran rampant about what it was, said Deutsch. They found that the object traveled slower than expected, suggesting the object was less than a billion years old, or at least around a billion years old. They also noted that the push from the sun or the rocket effect usually associated with comets as sunlight vaporizes their ice content, was larger than what would have been expected. They also noted that the object seemed to have no detectable gas emissions, so no tail like a normal comet. And of course, there was that unique flat shape. And so the two hypothesized that the object's composition included different kinds of ice, which would sublimate, pass directly from solid to a gas, as Oumuamua flew past the sun. This allowed them to infer from the rocket effect the object's mass, shape, and the reflectivity of the ices. This was an exciting moment for us, Desh said. We realized that a chunk of ice would be much more reflective than people were assuming, which meant it could be smaller. The same rocket effect would then give Oumuamua a bigger push, bigger than comets usually experience. Key to the hypothesis was solid nitrogen ice. Using nitrogen ice as the composition of the object provided an exact match to all of the known features of the mysterious object. 
And the place we know that has nitrogen ice on its surface in the local solar system is Pluto. It's far enough out to be cold enough for the ice and solid enough to hold it. We knew that we had hit on the right idea when we completed the calculations for what albedo, how reflective the body is, would make the motion of Oumuamua match the observations, said Jackson, who was a research scientist and an exploration fellow at ASU. That valve came out to be, that value came out to being the same as we observed on the planets, on the surfaces of Pluto or Triton, bodies covered in nitrogen ice. They then calculated when a chunk of solid nitrogen ice from another solar system might reach ours and determined that it was most likely thrown out of its parent solar system around half a billion years ago. This also explains the shape because as the ice sublimates off of the object, it would have become more flattened like a bar of soap with its outer layers rubbed off by use. Which is all very cool and very likely, and it is a much better idea than the than that proposed by Avi Loeb of Harvard University, who just wrote a book called Extraterrestrial, The First Signs of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth which suggests that the object was actually a probe sent to the solar system by an intelligent species outside of it. It's raised questions about the scientific method and the responsibility of scientists to stay within the realm of possibility. Everybody is interested in aliens, and it was inevitable that this first object outside the solar system would make people think of aliens, Desch said. But it's important in science not to jump to conclusions. It took two or three years to figure out a natural explanation, a chunk of nitrogen ice, that matches everything we know about Oumuamua. That's not that long in science, and far too soon to say we had exhausted all natural explanations. So yeah, um, I think that's a really, really important point, um, that... It's almost kind of a God of the Gaps argument. Um, but instead of God, it's extraterrestrials. Um, <laughs> and so just because you can't immediately find a natural explanation for something doesn't mean that it is unnatural by its very nature. It can absolutely still be natural, and it just takes us a while to figure out what that natural phenomena is. It's kind of like how people see ghosts. I'm convinced that there's some sort of naturalistic explanation for all of this. Not that they're not seeing something or that they're making it up. I think that people have real experiences. I just think that all of those experiences can be or will be eventually explainable by scientific laws and scientific understandings. Um, and so I think that's always a better position to have. It's very rare that one can jump to the conclusion that something is supernatural or outside of our understanding of um, what can and cannot be. And so, yeah, I think it's a little frustrating for people to have jumped on the bandwagon of extraterrestrials for this object because it seemed very clear to me that it was 
some sort of natural object. All right. Um, and so knowing that it is more, most likely from a Pluto-like planet is actually quite exciting on its own. It lets us know that there are Pluto-like planets in other solar systems, which is actually a pretty big deal. The researchers hope that in the next few decades, as we develop and deploy next-generation telescopes, we'll be able to discover more extrasolar objects, and that'll be really exciting. The more of these objects we discover and analyze, the better we'll be able to understand what's going on in solar systems outside of our local one. This research is exciting in that we've probably resolved the mystery of what Oumuamua is, and we can reasonably identify it as a chunk of an exo-Pluto, a Pluto-like planet in another solar system, Deutsch said. Until now, we've had no way to know if other solar systems have Pluto-like planets, but now we have seen a chunk of one pass by Earth. So, very exciting. Okay, so... I do want to check in uh, with our new favorite Mars rover, Percy, but I think we should take a break first and do some show promos and some PSAs. When we come back, we'll uh, listen to the Mars rover as it moves along the surface of Mars. So do stay tuned for that. Hang on for just a few minutes. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, 
in the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to turn to our new favorite Mars rover. Not that all of the others aren't still in our hearts, uh, but Percy. And so we've talked about the fact that this rover has a microphone, making it the first rover to be able to record sounds on another object in the solar system. Now, unfortunately, it turns out that the uh, microphones did not deploy or start working until uh, the rover hit the surface, so we didn't get the sound of the rover landing. But, um, you know, say la vie. Uh, on that, on that front, because we're getting a lot of great sound. And so this week's drop from NASA is a recording of the rover taking its first 90 foot jaunt across the surface. And well, it's actually kind of noisy. A lot of people, when they see the images, don't appreciate that the wheels are metal. Vandy Verma, a senior engineer and rover driver at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California, said in an agency press release, When you're driving with these wheels on rocks, it's actually very noisy. And so, let's listen to a little bit. Now, last week was the sound of the rover's laser working on samples of rock. But I actually kind of like this one better. And all of these are able to be found on NASA's SoundCloud um, account. So if you want to listen to the full clips of any of these, you can go there. If I heard these sounds driving my car, I'd pull over and call for a tow, said Dave Gruel, lead engineer for Mars 2020 EDL camera and a microphone subsystem in a NASA release. But if you take a minute to consider what you're hearing and where it was recorded, it makes perfect sense. So that's exciting. And in other NASA news, this is one of my new favorite headlines. Um, Life Science reported it this way. NASA tested its new moon rocket in Mississippi, and it only caught on fire a little bit. (laughs) So that's pretty hilarious. 
Uh, NASA's second test of the Space Launch System, or SLS, core stage took place on Thursday the 18th, after its first test run on January 16th was aborted after just 67.7 seconds after a quote-unquote major component failure error. Uh, And so this time, NASA had hoped to test the extremely powerful rocket for at least four minutes. And so it turned out the test lasted for over eight minutes, with a small fire being noted on a camera recording the engines. NASA noted that the fire was actually just a bit of tape that unexpectedly ignited. If the tape gets hot enough, that adhesive layer below the tape surface is going to start burning. So we clearly saw a lot of that, a NASA commentator said during the webcast. But there was nothing that prompted shutdown early, which was really good news. And so the next step is to actually put the whole thing together and launch it into space. NASA hopes to eventually send it in a loop around the moon. If they can do that, it will go a long way to supporting the goal of using the SLS as a platform for the Artemis missions, meant to build a space station in orbit around the moon, and to use that station as a stopping-off point for astronauts headed to the moon's surface and eventually, potentially, to Mars. Now, the new rocket is smaller than the old Saturn V rockets that got the Apollo missions off the ground, but the engine is much more powerful, producing around 15% more thrust and is overall much more efficient. Now, despite having a successful run, the rocket system has had problems with delays and cost overruns. And so there is still some conversations that we're going to be having about it in future. Um, There is a stage that they were already considering building, which is supposed to be an upgrade. And a lot of people are saying, why do we need to upgrade it when we still haven't finished the main part of it? Um, which is not an unreasonable uh, argument, but um, I think it's still great that they were able to have this successful test run and get this rocket um, on its way to production. I think that's really exciting. All right, so we're going to shift slightly from um, astrophysics and uh, space exploration to plain old physics. Let's talk about the Swirlon. This is a really cool new type of matter, or new kind of matter, I should say. So Newton's law of motion apply largely to passive, non-living matter. But a lot of things made of matter are living and move on their own. Nikolai Brilliantov, a mathematician at Skolkovo, Institute of Science and Technology in Russia and the University of Leicester in England notes that many living things from bacteria to birds to humans interact with the forces acting upon them. There are even nanoparticles called Janus particles made up of two sides with different chemical properties which cause them to have self-propelled movement. Brilliantov and his colleagues used a computer simulation of particles that can self-propel in order to better understand active matter. Now, the particles weren't consciously moving within the environment, but were more like simple bacteria or nanoparticles with an internal energy source, but no higher processing abilities. 
despite this lack of purpose, they found that the active matter acted very differently from that of passive matter. They found that the active matter did not exist in different states. So, for instance, passive matter, matter can exist in different forms. You can have ice, water, and mist all at the same time. But the active matter didn't coexist in different phases. It was only present in either solid, liquid, or gas. They also grouped together in large, in large conglomerates or quasi-particles, which created a specific pattern, a swirling motion around a central void, much like schools of fish. The researchers dubbed these particle conglomerations swirlons and have named the new state of matter cr created by these forms a swirlonic state. In this state, the particles display odd properties. For instance, they violate Newton's second law. When a force is applied to them, they don't accelerate. Now, these simulations are just the first step, and the next step is to study real-world active matter. Brilliantov and his colleagues plan to do more complex simulations using particles which have information processing abilities. This will help them to simulate insects and animals and to help describe the physics involved in swarms, schools, and flocks. And so beyond this really cool research into these phenomena, they also see practical applications. Once you know how this works, you could potentially create self-assembling materials from active matter. So that is pretty cool. And recently in the world of physics, we had another interesting result. We've learned that four physicists have detected the smallest gravitational field yet. Back in 2019, over the Christmas break in Vienna, the four observed the gravitational field of a tiny gold orb influencing the gravity of another tiny globe, gold globe, both around the size of a ladybug. They did this in a room as devoid of sound, vibration, and even electrical fields as possible in order to make sure that nothing could be a false positive. This is actually why they did the experiments during Christmas break, where there would be less traffic, less trams, and other possible sources of contamination. You need to play some tricks, Marcus Aspelmeyer, a quantum physicist at the University of Vienna and a co-author of the paper noted, to distinguish the acceleration from the source mass against the accelerations of all other masses, of all the other masses. They were able to detect the extremely slight wobble caused by the source mass, according to a new paper in the journal Nature. If you take our little gold planet, an object on the surface of the planet would actually fall down with a velocity that is 30 billion times slower compared to how fast objects fall on Earth. He said, this is the magnitude we are talking about. Now, gold was chosen because it's heavy, dense, it can be made fairly pure, and the properties of the mass are easily understood. Now, the gold globes were actually crafted by a local goldsmith in Vienna, and they were crafted to specifications required for the experiment. In the lab, the gold beads were separated by a Faraday shield to prevent electromagnetic interference. One bead was attached to a bar hanging from the ceiling 
with a mirror on it, and the other, the source mass, was moved intermittently. A laser was pointed at the mirror, which allowed for precise measurements of the movements of that ball as it was affected by the source mass. The experiment shows that Newton's law of gravity holds even at this very small scale. Now remember, gravity is the weakest of the four fundamental forces, so detecting it is that much harder. Now the next step is to move to the quantum level in order to reconcile the fact that general relativity, our best explanation for gravity, cannot be explained when discussing quantum mechanics. And so the smaller the field that can be measured, the closer we get to answering important questions, like why dark matter is invisible but still contributes mass to the universe. But before that can happen, the team will continue with such small-scale experiments, because right now, we still haven't mastered the ability to dampen all outside influences. The main limiting factor at the moment is still environmental noise, which does not necessarily mean a different experimental setup, said co-author Hans Hepak, a physicist at the University of Vienna. The fundamentally limiting factor for the current experiment is the thermal noise of the suspension of the pendulum, thus eliminating the suspension and levitating the test mass, for example magnetically, would allow for smaller masses. But for now, the researchers can be proud to have expanded our understanding of the universe's weakest fundamental force. Okay, now we have discussed both physics and astronomy, and so now let's talk about an artifact, a historical artifact, that combines both. A new digital model of the Antikythera mechanism suggests a key function of the device would have required some very advanced understanding. Tony Freeth, lead author of the paper published in Scientific Reports and a mechanical engineer at the University College London, notes that their model is the first to account for all of the physical evidence and matches the description in the scientific inscriptions engraved on the mechanism itself, he said in a statement. Now, I hope you're aware of what the Antikythera mechanism is, but just in case, the mechanism was discovered in 1901 off the coast of Crete in a shipwreck. The 2,000-year-old device only has about a third of the original components, but those include 30 bronze gears and 82 individual fragments of metal that are part of what is clearly an analog astronomical device. Now, obviously, it is a bit of an out-of-place uh, object, but again, that doesn't show, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is a level of technology that is outside of the capability of those ancient Greeks. It simply means that we haven't found anything else like it. That doesn't mean that it is actually an artifact from somewhere else. It might just have been that there was one particular genius who did this and either didn't share it with others or was, um, you know, died or was killed or any number of things. You know, there are people who are really advanced, even above and beyond what others in their civilization are. And also we know that the Greeks knew about metallurgy and a lot of the um, astronomical mathematics involved. And so it's not 
with it's not outside of the realm of what I believe that the ancient Greeks could have done. And so the device modeled astronomical phenomena and events such as lunar and solar eclipses, as well as the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So those are the known planets to the ancients. In 2016, researchers finished a decades-long investigation of the item. Using an X-ray scanner, they were able to document 3,500 characters of explanatory text embedded on the device. The text is a sort of instructional manual for the machine itself. And so the text suggests the mechanism isn't a true computer, so it isn't programmable, but rather it was designed to show our place in the universe and to forecast celestial events such as solar and lunar eclipses. Now, the new study was meant to model the gearing system at the front of the mechanism, much of which has been lost. And so the text mentions a display in which the planets and the moon are represented by marker beads which move around on rings. Solving this complex 3D puzzle reveals a creation of genius, combining cycles from Babylonian astronomy, mathematics from Plato's Academy, and ancient Greek astronomical theories, wrote the authors, which included mechanical engineer Adam Wojcik, also from UCL. Now, the Babylonians chronicled the motions of the planets, and the ancient Greek philosopher Parmenides developed a mathematical model of the movements. Inscriptions include mentions of celestial cycles assigned to Venus at 462 years and Saturn at 442 years. Scientists associate these numbers with synodic cycles. This describes the length of time required for a planet to return to its original position in the sky. These cycles were a big deal to the Greeks, who believed that the Earth was at the center of the universe. They would have noticed that at times the planets would have stood still or even seemed to move backwards, in what we now call retrograde, retrograde motion. This is, of course, an optical illusion that is caused by our different speeds, at, the different speeds at which we orbit the sun. And, of course, we know that the word planet comes from the Greek for wanderer. And so the Greeks made up some wild theories uh, about how and why the planets wandered in the sky. Most of it was is kind of laughable right now um, at this point in our understanding, but of course, we have a lot more tools at our disposal. Uh, and so their interest in these movements actually made the Antikythera mechanism more complicated than it needed to be. Because they envisioned the Earth at the center of it all, the mechanism didn't just have the planets orbiting smoothly, but included those perturbations in the orbit observed from the Earth. And so you would have to have it go backwards at some points and then move forward again. But amazingly, they did this for all of the planets modeled in a machine that was really super compact when you look at it, using only mathematics and copper gears, which is serious over-engineering. And that's the next feat for the researchers themselves, creating a model of the mechanism. 
Now we must prove its feasibility by making it with ancient techniques, said Wojcik. A particular challenge will be the system of nested tubes that carried the astronomical outputs. And so, yeah, it is super exciting. Um, I cannot wait to see what they do. Um, because the Antikythera mechanism is just one of my favorite ancient objects, obviously, because it's so unique and so, um, just detailed and, and just incredible. All right. So we're going to shift gears again, <laughs> and we are going to finish up tonight by talking about dinosaurs. Yay. <laughs> And so, an amazing find by paleontologist in China has been announced. Shendong Bi from Indiana University of Pennsylvania and Xin Zhu from the Chinese Academy of Sciences found the fossils of an oviraptor sitting on a nest of eggs. And not only is the dinosaur found was the dinosaur found brooding its eggs, but the eggs still have evidence of the embryos. Now, of course, one thing that is unsurprising is that it's an oviraptor. Oviraptor actually means egg thief or egg seizer, because they were originally thought to have been a predator that hunted eggs. And so I remember that from when I was a little kid. I remember seeing documentaries where you had these little oviraptors and they would come and they would snatch eggs from other dinosaurs' um, nests. But later we realized that the, they weren't eating those eggs, but those eggs were actually baby oviraptors and that they were brooding them. Here we report the first non-avian dinosaur fossil known to preserve an adult skeleton atop an egg clutch that contains embryonic remains, declare the authors of the research paper published in Science Bulletin. And so previous skeletons have been found in association with eggs, but those did not have any evidence of the embryos. And we've also found eggs with embryos that have been found by themselves, but neither directly showed brooding like a bird. It's further proof that non-avian dinosaurs also had brooding behavior. Oviraptors were a very successful and varied theropod dinosaur during the Cretaceous period. The largest were almost 2,500 pounds, while some of them were more the size of chickens. Common features of the group include feathers, a long neck, wings, and beaks. In other words, despite being non-avian, they were very bird-like, looking much like modern ostriches. They laid their eggs in near-perfect circles, layering the large clutches of eggs in an orderly fashion. The new fossil, designated LDNHMF 2008, was excavated from the Nanxiong Formation near the Ganzhou Railway in China's Jiangxi Province in the south. It dates to around 70 million years ago, toward the end of the Cretaceous. The skull and some other bones are missing, but the adult mid-sized oviraptor seems to have died while brooding. The bones were found alongside an undisturbed clutch of at least 24 eggs, some of which are broken, exposing embryonic bones, wrote the authors in the study. And so the eggs have been assigned to the species Macrolithus yautunensis. And so microscopic analysis shows that some of them were almost ready to hatch, suggesting that the dinosaur was brooding the eggs, not just guarding them. 
This kind of discovery, in essence fossilized behavior, is the rarest of the rare in dinosaurs. In the new specimen, the babies were almost ready to hatch, which tells us beyond a doubt that this oviraptorid had tended its nest for quite a long time. Matthew Lamana, a paleontologist at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History and a co-author of the new study, said in a statement, This dinosaur was a caring parent that ultimately gave its life while, while nurturing its young. In addition, oxygen isotope analysis shows that the eggs were incubated at high bird-like temperatures, between 97 and 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And in another nod to modern birds, the embryos were found to be in different stages of development. This is called hatchling asynchrony, and while we can't be sure exactly why this was, definitively, it suggests that because there were many eggs in the nest, eggs that were closer to the animal would have received more heat and therefore developed more quickly than eggs at the bottom of the nest. And to top things off, the researchers also found pebbles in the abdominal region, which suggests that these are gastroliths, stones swallowed to help with digestion. This is the first observation of gastroliths found in an oviraptor. So this is one mighty fossil. It's extraordinary to, to think how much biological information is captured in just this single fossil, said Xu. We're going to be learning from this specimen for many years to come. And finally, let's talk about my personal favorite dinosaur, the Ankylosaurus. Now, we have an issue with Ankylosaurus. They're often found without their bodies which is a problem for understanding how these stout, tank-like herbivores with clubbed tails developed. But a new specimen is opening up our understanding of the animal. An international team described the post-cranial remains of an ankylosaurus found in Mongolia's Gobi Desert. The remains suggest that the dinosaur may have used digging for defense or strategic purposes. Now, the Cretaceous dinosaur cannot be identified with a particular species since we catalog these animals by their skulls, since those are much more common. The remains were discovered 50 years ago, but it was only in 2008 that the team had enough resources to analyze the fossil. It was prepared at a South Korean lab and returned to Mongolia in 2012. Articulated body skeletons of armored dinosaurs are quite rare, said Yuang Nam Lee, a paleontologist at Seoul National University in South Korea and a co-author of the paper. The nearly complete skeleton that we have studied lately, the complete skeleton we have studied lately provides valuable information about their evolution and behavior. By comparing our specimen to other related dinosaurs, we now know that the armored dinosaurs of Asia evolved rigid bodies and decreased the number of pedal flanges, or toes, through time. And so, again, they found that the Asian ankylosaurs were less flexible than their cousins from North America. And so this may have been to support a long tail or because of their fused vertebrae. They also had a reduced toe count, which most likely developed because they were also heavier than their cousins. This would have made them less mobile and make the tank comparison even more apt. They also found that the adaptation, skeletal rigidity, and a slight curve of the animal's front feet would have made them more trowel-like, suggesting they may have dug into the ground to present only their bony skeletons to an attacking theropod. And in fact, 
This skeleton had five theropod flanges, those hand or foot bones, embedded in the ribs. We are curious whether young ankylosaurs were also capable of bullet digging. Baby ankylosaurs lack extensive body armor on their bodies, and this must have made them vulnerable to predators. If the babies could dig, then dwelling in underground spaces seemed possible, like armadillos do today. While this is still speculative, this specimen also will allow more research into the body plan and possible behavior of these stout dinosaurs. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy. The political climate of today's world is extremely polarized, and nuanced conversations are dead. And I shouldn't have to say this, the bi-weekly chaotic good podcast, well, all of those things are still true. Co-hosts Nicole and Janma do their very best to hold honest conversations about everything political, from art to policy, finance, and electoral strategy, with humor and humility, from a couple of opinionated leftists dead set on creating a better world and fighting misinformation wherever and from whoever it crops up from. Search for I Shouldn't Have to Say This on your favorite podcast listening app, or you can visit saythiscast.com. I Shouldn't Have to Say This is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network.